we've been paying attention today to the fluidity of things. And we may notice that in all kinds of different ways. One of the things that uh, that contemplating the changing nature of things does, in fact, one of the things, maybe one of the central things that our whole way of practicing here this week does, and that our whole orientation to a contemplative life does, is it shows us how much we resist that changing nature. How much we attempt to control our experience. We attempt so much to control our experience that we live in the illusion that we can control it. We live in the illusion that we can control it so much that even me saying, even me calling our capacity to control our experience an illusion probably affronts you in some way. And like somebody was reporting the other day, arguing with me in their heads, well, feel free. But, but! And of course you can no doubt find all manner of uh, justifications for elements of your life that you manage miraculously to control. Good for you. But if we look carefully, we see that the things that we actually have control over, or what we call control, tend to be actually rather insignificant, rather small things. Of course, in our me-shaped world, like we were speaking about yesterday, those things take on uh, an amplitude and a magnitude that can fill our consciousness. Right? The things that we feel we have control over, that we try to have control over, that we persuade ourselves that we have control over, tend to be the, the me-shaped things. Right? How I spend my money, I have some control over that. What I want to do, so I will have some control over that. I chose to come to the Mulan, etc., etc. Actually, I think we can, if we look closely, we, the, the, the idea of choice is a pretty shaky one. I would question whether any of you actually chose to come here. Even those things that we say, well, of course, I, I chose, I have control over that. When we examine closely how we respond and react to circumstances, the, the idea of choice, as if we look at things in a dispassionate way and, and then make uh, some kind of decision that suggests you know, agency, etc. But actually, it seems more often what's happening is we're being influenced constantly by our conditioning right, in the past, plus conditions as they are in the moment. And we have a variety of responses that arise to those conditions. And those responses arise as preferences right, that we don't really choose, I would say. 
Did you did you choose to get into meditation? Or was it that conditioning was such, plus conditions arose, you started to hear about it, and you found your interest growing, and then it somehow you, the feeling drew you, and uh, you, before you knew it, you'd booked on, and here you are. Huh? We tend to respond to a combination of past influencing factors, right, that have determined our our interests and preferences, plus conditions arising in the present that draw forth certain involuntary responses from us, and out of that we act and speak and move. And then we look back and we say, well, I decided to go on a meditation retreat. (laughs) So even those things where we uh, can sort of successfully argue that we have agency, control, choice, decision-making capacity, I would say we're more um, at the mercy of those influencing factors and conditions than we like to admit. Because in a way that's what the self-structure, the persuasion of me, Martin, with my history and my preferences and my ideas, that's what the self-structure is. It's the co-opting of experience as mine. It's the corrupting the experience as being under my control. So we might say, well, maybe the whole of Dharma practice is actually about giving up control. Or maybe we might say about realizing that we're just not in control. And, you know, those things, those small things, Oh, I, I, I decided to have this for breakfast. I decided to go there tomorrow, etc. Those small things pale into insignificance against the larger themes of our life over which we clearly can't demonstrate any control. Like being born. And that's a pretty significant event in your life. Right? How much choice or control did you exercise in that? And then the, the fact that having been born... Your body just does this thing. It grows and it develops. and uh, Of course, uh, influencing factors are there that we decide to eat this or that food. We uh, choose in accordance with these influencing factors th- to exercise or not, etc., etc. So influencing factors are always there. But basically, the grand themes of our life, birthing, aging, First growing and developing, then decaying, shrinking, and then dying. Over which, if it's not already clear to you, I'm sorry to break the news, you don't have any control. So there's the picture of human life, out of control, happening by itself, overlaid with a tendency to try and make sense of this out-of-control experience. 
called imposing a view of self on it that says, I'm here, I'm in control, I'm in charge, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. So, I'd be curious if you have any argument with that uh, uh, presentation of life. Please feel free, if so. So, either we're all in agreement, or you're a little shy to say otherwise. So, I thought I'd just reflect a little this evening on a recipe. Some recipes, some Buddhist recipes for this out-of-control life. Some recipes for um, managing to give up control. Which is called liberation, by the way. Freeing ourselves up from the onerous responsibility of having to manage my life. Because the rather sweet, refreshing, relieving, beautiful thing is that despite all that I imagine when I'm trying to control, actually the vast majority of all that goes on in this life doesn't need it. It just doesn't need my control. Not only does my life manage very well without me, It actually manages much better than I can. <laughs> A couple of Buddhist recipes for for calling out the the neurotic and. Uh, Tense controlling of things. The first is renunciation. About as glamorous as patient endurance. <laughs> so just like when we hear patient endurance, you know, the, or the, the 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 mood dropped in the room, right? Yeah. Now, what about when we hear renunciation? Oh. <laughs> so maybe we'll, like we've been doing with some of these Buddhist terms, maybe we'll try and find a translation that we're happier with. A translation that actually maybe conveys something of the beautiful spirit of that. Because I imagine what do we, most of us hear when we hear renunciation is doing without something. No? Renunciation seems to be giving up something that I would rather not give up. But the spirit of renunciation in the tradition is one of unburdening. So, like with control, it can feel rather frightening to us, the idea of giving up control. But actually, what we're pointing to is rather the, the liberation, the freedom of unburdening ourselves of the need, the neurotic need and the rather futile need of trying to control. 
ou mesmo several areas that we can particularly um, unburden ourselves. And of course, we have been looking at our experience in the context of being here these days, but as we've tried to make clear throughout, rather than seeing this as something that's separate from our life or different from our life in the way that the name retreat sometimes reinforces, which is why we say, well, let's not be on retreat. Let's just be in the midst of our life, but in a way that's a practice-intensive, right? where there's a certain concentrating of our resources, a certain focusing of attention, a certain increased willingness to look, to connect, to explore, to listen, to discover. So even though we're looking at our life in the context of these days, these practices of unburdening are not uh, ab particularly about this environment or about this rhythm of life. Quite a lot of the unburdening is already done for us, actually, in being in this kind of environment. That's one of the potent things about this kind of environment is that we're already unburdened of many of our usual uh, duties and habits and preferences. So what we get uh, left with is a rather special and unique opportunity to see how even with all that stuff being unburdened, how we can apply exactly the same tendencies of control to whatever's left. Right. And uh, the chuckles, of course, just show me that you know exactly what I'm talking about. In whatever ways, the attempts to control small details, the tendency to freak out about the way somebody else left their flip-flops outside the door. <laughs> that was my pet control freakery when then uh, often on retreat. I remember reading in one or other Dharma book that, you know, mindfulness, you, it was a Zen story. And then uh, the master tested the student in the Zen story by checking how he had left his chapels, his flip-flops outside the door to see if he was mindful in every moment. And it's not that I was necessarily mindful in every moment, but I became very alert to how I left my flip-flops outside the door and gave me a great sense of superiority over all the people whose... So I've been looking outside. <laughs> so it may be in an environment like this that we're looking in a rather subtle way at a tendency to control. It may be in, the, in some of the other activities and rhythms and speeds we move at in life that we're looking at uh, more obvious or outer manifestations. But same things apply. So, the first invitation is to unburden oneself of what I want. 
And that's one that offends our sensibilities. Right? And that's one that we can also put up all kinds of arguments against. And of course we have preferences. And of course we just want to follow our preferences. And of course we prefer the pleasant to the unpleasant. And of course we would, uh, we would uh, uh, follow our uh, responses to life in a way that accords with those preferences. But that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all the me-shaping. That implicit in what I want is, well, firstly, the idea that I actually really know, that I've actually considered it. Often it's a very profound question for us. What do I really want? It's a question that can drop through many layers. And we actually notice that we can spend a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of money pursuing things that again, that we don't really choose or control, that appear as uh, impulses that aren't actually really aligned with our values, with our heart. So there's one opportunity to unburden ourselves, to actually get some free space around the completely natural process of wanting that arises. And the other aspect of that is that, of course, we think we, the arrogance of thinking that I know and that I control and that I'm in charge lends us to believe that we know how to get what we want and that what it is that just appears as what we want is somehow the thing that's going to make us happy. And... and I was just reflecting about this coming in and thinking, I don't know so much how to talk about this stuff. Right? It's very, very hard to persuade anybody to unburden themselves of what they want. But it may be that you can recognize that the the real delights in life often come in a rather unexpected way. That the things that we often find most helpful, most instructive, most nourishing, aren't the things we were looking for at the time. That our illusion of choice and control often points us in a direction that's actually not the one we were really into. Uh, looking for, intending, or aligned with. And of course, even if we think we're very clear about what it is we want, our capacity to control it going like that and going like that is rather vague. You might see for yourself, if you look back over the last... 20 years or so. You know, how, how, much, uh, how much did the trajectory of your life over the last 20 years accord with the plan you had for it 20 years ago? And I can see a few of you shaking your head. Right? 
And maybe some elements of it did. Maybe you decided to be a doctor at school and then you studied medicine and then you became a doctor. Okay. But of course, we tend to emphasize the bits that do have some continuity because it pacifies, that it reassures the sense of choice and control. But what about all the other stuff, all the other stuff that's way beyond control and that happens actually rather magically? We were speaking the other night about that sense of blessing. It's hard to see the blessings of life when one's fixated on what I want. Renunciation, the giving up of what I want, the unburdening around wanting, feels to us initially like we're going to be left without. That we're going to be bereft in some way. But of course, what one's doing in that unburdening is leaving oneself open to possibility. One's listening for something that may be infinitely more nourishing than what I think I want. But hey, don't take my word for it. It's, it's kind of uh, living in this blessing field that is the moulin. We live very comfortably here. I live very well here. I feel blessed by the environment and blessed by the community here and blessed by the material conditions here in all kinds of ways. So I could, th- I could feel like I'm a fraud to be sitting here talking to you about renunciation and living the high life at the Moulin. <laughs> but this isn't what I wanted. Certainly not what I planned. In fact, had I tried to want and plan this, I, w- I can't imagine I would have got anywhere. I can't imagine how I would have been on earth have organized the, 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 anything. How I, I can't imagine what I would have done financially, what I would have done. It would have just looked impossible to me. But it was, uh, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't as a result of me wanting it. Or, try, or even trying to create it. But much more about a sense of uh, unburdening myself of where I thought I could or should be heading. And honouring what was here. Honouring what was... Uh, be, felt like it was being called for. Honouring a certain willingness to hang out in that vulnerable space where I unburden myself. And that leads to, then to the next uh, invitation of unburdening oneself of what I think. So first, the unburdening of what I want. Second, the unburdening of what I think. Oh, we don't like that one either. Unburdening ourselves of our views. And the, the, the strong attachment to our views. 
It's not that we shouldn't have views, of course. We get, anyway, we can't stop ourselves from having views. But we can be willing to give up being so right in our views. Something beautiful happens as we recognize the me-shaping of views, as we recognize the limitation, the tunnel vision of views, and as we dare to relinquish them, relinquish them, relinquish them, relinquish the being right, relinquish the moral high ground, relinquish the self-righteousness, the inflation. What happens is that we are able increasingly to see in more dimensions. And being fixed on our views, we can only see in two dimensions. Right, which is over here, and wrong, which is over there. Or, depending on our personality structure, sometimes the other way around. Oh, right is over there, wrong is over here. As we unburden ourselves of the way right and wrong keeps appearing, wherever we position it, we find our perspective fills out and we're able to see from multiple perspectives simultaneously. Another way of saying, we're able to see that everyone's right. Everyone is right in their own world, in their own tunnel. Or we might say that everyone is as right as their clinging to their views is. Is that how to say that? Everyone is as right as their belief in their rightness makes them. It's a big liberation to not have to be right. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. And then the third category, we're asked to unburden ourselves of who we take ourselves to be. And we spoke earlier about that, that tenacious conceit of being the one who. And this renunciation, it's not something we can just put down. We can't just put down our wants. We can't just put down our views. We can't just put down our sense of who we are. Of course not. The, actually, the arising of wants, the arising of views, the arising of a self-sense is completely natural. It's the holding on to it, the being seduced by it, the believing in it at whatever the cost that makes things so limited. So, in other words, we're invited to take ourselves less personally. Take ourselves less seriously. We start off this path thinking we know exactly who we are. And those things, those fragments of who we think we are, rather clumsy, 
things like name and ide and uh, gender and nationality, uh, etc. We add a sprinkling of details from our history to support that. And it's interesting that it is just a sprinkling of details, right? You can't, you know, it would take, if you've got four decades of history, it would take four decades to recall all that history, by which time you'd have eight decades of history to recall. So the, the bits we add to support the sense of who I am are just other the sprinklings that support, that are in line with the view we already have. So we start this path knowing who we are, but with some doubt. If we had no doubt, we wouldn't come here. We'd be completely entrenched in that view. I think I know who I am, but there seems to be more. And we may come to somewhere like this in the hope that we're going to find out better who we are. And it turns out we actually start to find out less and less. We become less and less and less and less certain of who we are. Which also sounds scary. That's the interesting thing about all these three renunciations. I don't want to give up what I want. I don't want to give up what I think. I certainly don't want to give up the, the, the least one mooring point in the midst of an unstable world of who I've spent some decades constructing a more or less stable sense of who I am. And yet, actually, the... the the result of, is, an, what do we call it, an, un, an unburdening, a relief. Part of the fear in giving up the sense of who we are is that, that, that I'll lose the capacity for personhood. But actually, we, we never lose the capacity to speak and act as if there's someone here. Actually, their capacity gets a lot more refined because we're not dependent on it. We can use it to the extent necessary. It's super handy for some of the interactions of life. And we're also able to feel around it, to see beyond it. To not take it so personally or seriously. But if we're asked, if we're, um, if we're going to give up what I want, what I think, and who I am. Surely we've got to replace that with something. And I think that something is a something that's sometimes missing in this kind of uh, tradition. We've inherited this, um, uh, this tradition from... Or we've inherited this meditation practice from an Asian tradition that was about much more than meditation. And we've tried to point to correlation between inner contemplative life and outer engaged life. But in those Asian traditions, the practice was filled out by, by somewhere to rest the heart, somewhere to rest one's faith, somewhere to rest one's devotion, you might say. 
to compensate for giving up what I want and giving up what I think and giving up who I take myself to be. And for some of you might feel a certain stirring in the heart when you feel the word when you hear the word devotion. But some of you, maybe many of you, feel a certain discomfort. We don't really do devotion in certainly in modern secular Western society. And yeah, I know some people, even just to, when I come in, I make my little bow to the Buddha, and I turn around and make my little bow to you. And then some bow back, and maybe you enjoy bowing, I don't know. Some bow, like, oh God. <laughs> right? I really don't want to bow. I really don't know why I'm bowing. I really don't know if I want to bow to this guy. But other people are bowing, and it seems to be the form. So I'll go along with it. And some are resolutely not bowing. It's very understandable why we feel some discomfort around devotion. We probably, all of us in some way, have been betrayed by, uh, by giving ourselves to someone or to something, or to some ideal, and having that uh, trust or belief uh, betrayed in some way. Even in very small ways in early life, you know, we kind of we are very naturally devoted to our parents when we're young, and sometimes just in very small ways, we feel that that uh, devotion betrayed just by their their um, unattunement to us at some times, and of course some of us uh, through uh, violence or neglect or abuse. Um, have have that devotion betrayed in very very painful and traumatic ways. So it's understandable that we feel some reticence around devotion. And yet, devotion itself, the willingness to to bow in this case, the willingness to bow it doesn't have to be uh, here. It doesn't have to be to the Buddha doesn't have to be physically anywhere, but the willingness to kind of, we might say, actually prostrate before life. The willingness to let life itself be bigger than me. To let life be more important than me. To let life be something I can rest my wants in. I can rest my views in. I can put down the burden of who I'm trying to be in the lap of this vast, mysterious, divine life. In Buddhism, there's a, there's a form for that. And that's why when I come in, there's a, the, the bowing, the bowing to the Buddha. Partly it's just a kind of um, fondness. I'm happy to see the Buddha. Partly it's, uh, there's a kind of acknowledgement of the, just that kind of two and a half thousand years of, of tradition and teaching and all that I've received from my teachers, etc. But really what bowing to the Buddha means, Buddha means awake. Right? 
that one's resting one's wants and views and the need and need to be someone at the altar of awakeness. One's taking refuge. Buddhang Saranangachami. Ah, oh, I go to the Buddha, I go to awakeness for refuge. If you've got no refuge, it's very hard to put down your wants and views and who you take yourself to be. It's just terrifying, in fact. It feels like if I put all that down, there'll be nothing left. But one's laying them at the feet of wakefulness. Being here. A here that doesn't demand anything. A here that does that can't be contained by what I think about it. A here that passes straight through the one I take myself to be. So that's when I come in, that's the bow to the Buddha, the bow to awakeness. And at the same time, I'm bowing to this teaching seat, which is empty when I'm bowing to it. Rather beautiful to say, bow to the Buddha, bow to the Dharma. And it's interesting for me that I'm bowing to an empty seat. I never see myself sitting on this seat. Whenever I look at the seat, it's empty. If I'm looking at myself, I can't see the Dharma seat. And if I'm looking, if I'm really looking at the Dharma seat, I don't see myself. There's a rather beautiful reflection in there. Bowing to the Dharma, to these teachings that illuminate the way life is. Dharma, bowing to the nature of things. Laying down the the accumulated weariness of my wants and views and uh, self-sense at the altar of the way things are. Then I turn around and I bow to all of you. And the Sangha. So these are the three jewels, right, in Buddhism. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Wakefulness, the way things are, and... Sangha really means support. So firstly, bowing to you. I see the Buddha up there. I turn around. Oh, more Buddhas. And so there's partly a bowing to the recognition of the goodness of your practice. Partly a bowing to, you know, not taking it for granted that you're here. Not taking it for granted, not just that you came, but that, that you're still here. Really what Sangha means is support. Oh yeah, that there are others that have walked this path before us, that are walking this path with us. That this sensibility, this feeling for freedom and expansiveness and harmony is a shared sensibility. One lays down one's own views and one's own wants and one's own tight self-sense at the altar of the way life supports this. The way every condition in the universe supports this. Right now. Earth is holding us up. 
Oxygen's coming in and out. Heart is pumping. It's got nothing to do with what I want or what I think. Certainly got nothing to do with the control I assume over my life. Good Lord, if I was responsible for keeping breath going. And you see how this week, how that works out. It kind of makes a mockery of our illusion of control. So we're invited into a wakefulness in which we can lay down our burden. Invited into a a close listening to the way things are that don't need our neurotic manipulation. We're invited to feel and to trust life's support which maybe knows much better what I need and where I'm going and what's possible in this life than my own fixed views do. This life that maybe knows much more about what this is than my own sense of self does. So I really invite you to bow, friends. Not not necessarily to this guy up here. He doesn't mind at all. And not necessarily to me, and not necessarily to the, at the Mulan, and not necessarily outwardly at all. But at least inwardly, I invite you to consider and to contemplate laying down your, the burden of trying, and if we're honest, constantly feeling a sense of failing to control our lives to always have to get what I want, to always have to know and, and be right and have some view about things. And maybe most burdensome of all, to always be having to reinforce and construct and then try to perfect this sense of the one who I take myself to be. Maybe all of that can be laid down at the altar of being awake to what is moment by moment. At the altar of life's naturalness of unfolding. And at the altar of life's freely expressed support for itself of which I seem to be some expression, of which you seem to be some expression, for an indeterminate amount of time. May it be so, for the liberation, for the heart's ease, for the great blessing of you and of each one of us, and of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.